Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I talk with so many people who actually believe in the diversity agenda and the diversity agenda broadly, not just gender or race, but all aspects of diversity. And those people really genuinely want to make a difference. And they regularly then report to me that they find themselves on the wrong foot, not intentionally, kind of quite accidentally and sort of confused. What do I do? I'm going to give you an example, which is a complicated example, but, you know, A colleague who is gay, male, makes a comment to a woman at work that she looks great today. An innocent comment, no further intentions beyond that, and yet finds himself in trouble in a variety of ways for having made that comment and not understanding. He would argue, but my intentions were good. And it's clear, if you know me, that there were no other unintended hints in that conversation. He's stumped. So like him or like anybody else, maybe you've concluded that you should just give up, not say anything. And certainly in today's headline, you would say never touch anyone again. Well, we'd like to argue today that that's not the only way to think about this, that there's something else to think about. And it has to do with thinking about this notion of how you frame your intentions. We'll see a lot more about it because what we're here to talk about is being the person you mean to be, to be, excuse me, being the person you mean to be. My guest today is Jolly Chug. Jolly is an award-winning tenured professor at New York University Stern School of Business where she studies the psychology of good people. She teaches MBA courses and management courses and negotiations on a whole host of things. Her book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias, just came out in the fall and has received acclaim all sorts of places all over everywhere. Her 2018 TED Talk had one and a half million viewers, which is incredible today. So 2018, Dolly Chug, the person you mean to be. And it's been one of the most popular TED Talks of 2018, I should also add. Dolly also writes a regular column for Forbes.com on race, gender, diversity, inclusion, and bias. And I have to add that Dolly has not always just been an academic. She's worked at a variety of institutions, including Morgan Stanley, Time, Scholastic, and Merrill Lynch. So she has a BA from Cornell, an MBA from Harvard, and her PhD is also from Harvard. So Dolly, great pleasure to welcome you to the show today. Oh, Wanda, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. I have to stop at the top of this. Being the person you mean to be, how good people fight bias. Why does this topic matter so much to you? Oh, you know, Wanda, it's uh, sometimes they say uh, all research is me search. Um, And I think there's a piece of that here that there's, um, I think like a lot of people, I go through the world trying not to do harm and, uh, and, and hoping I'm, I'm, you know, uh, doing my job well, serving um, my friends, taking care of my family, and, and leaving the world a slightly better place. And and then, boom, like, sometimes I get it wrong, and somebody's like, well, you know, what, 
I can't believe you just said that. That's offensive. Or um, I, I noticed myself kind of stubbing my toe and sort of how I speak to someone from a different group than me. And um, those moments is when I, when I really feel that gap between uh, what just happened and uh, the person I mean to be, to, to sort of play off the title of the book. So this topic matters to me because intellectually there's a really robust, set of psychology that helps us understand it. And personally, I think the world is complicated and I'm trying to navigate it just like everyone else. Okay. (laughs) That is such a great setup. So what are we supposed to do? I mean, you just said that you say something you what you meant what you the person you meant to be and there's a big gap with how it's received on the other end. So how should we be thinking? What are we to do here? Yeah, so, I mean, the the response is actually a little ironic. Part of of what we want to do is actually know that we're not always going to get it right, Um, that I... Uh, I consider myself a feminist. I, I, I care deeply about egalitarian values, and yet I had a teaching assistant track me in the classroom who I was calling on. Uh, we have a lot of discussion-based classes. Class participation is a big part of their grade. And, you know, I said, just keep track of my calling. Make sure I don't call on the same people over and over and that kind of thing. And she said, oh, you know, you did pretty good with this. You're not, you know, favoring one side of the room more than the other, whatever. She goes, but, you know, what I did notice you seem to call on men disproportionately more than women. And you seem to interrupt women disproportionately more than men. And I was like, whoa, how can that be? Um, that's certainly not the intention I have. And not only that, I actually teach uh, MBAs and most MBA programs, including the one I teach in at NYU, tend to be majority male. So, uh Females sometimes gravitate towards my classes because they're interested in having a female professor. And, and yet even there, those are moments where I'm making these mistakes. And so the question is, what happens when I make that mistake and when it's pointed out to me, when I now notice the mistake? Um, and this is where I think the what are we to do, it's what, what are we to do really rests on what do we do when the mistakes happen. We have a choice. We can say, wow, I have something to learn here. I'm kind of mortified, but let me pay attention. Or we can shut down. We can say, come up with any number of explanations for what just happened. We can get defensive. We can just move on and forget about it. Um, what are we to do really rests on what do we do when that gap between how we've behaved and the person we mean to be is exposed. Kelly, it strikes me, we're talking about this in the context of diversity and being the people we mean to be with others in the world. But this notion of what happens when a mistake is made and it's pointed out to me strikes me as hugely relevant for absolutely every aspect of life. What do we do when a mistake happens and it's pointed out? Right, right. Yeah, it's, um, it's you know, it's, um, I love the research of Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist at Stanford. She and her colleagues have decades of really beautiful 
findings that get at exactly that. Like, do we see ourselves um, in any particular domain? So, you know, you can pick it a soccer or public speaking or math or mastering the new features on my phone, like whatever the issue or domain is, do we see ourselves as a work in progress? She would call that having a growth mindset. Or do we see ourselves as already sort of being fixed in whatever our abilities are? Like maybe we we see our abilities as being fantastic or maybe we think, oh, I'm never going to be able to be a public speaker. Um, but either way, we see it as fixed and not malleable. And what she shows and she, or co- she and her colleagues show is that our belief about whether or not that ability or skill is malleable is what shapes how we react when we make a mistake. That when we're in a fixed mindset, brain activity actually drops when we make a mistake. We literally withdraw attention and effort from the mistake because what's the point of paying attention to the mistake if we don't think we are going to get any better or worse where our abilities are fixed? In a growth mindset, when I view myself as a work in progress, when I believe that effort or coaching can help me improve no matter where my starting point was, I make a mistake and it's like, oh gosh, I better pay attention to that. Like, what just happened there? And according to their research, brain activity actually goes up in those moments because we, we want to see what just happened. Okay, this, this is kind of, I mean, those who haven't looked at Carol Dweck's research, highly recommended. It's robust yeah. and been around for a really, really long time. So the notion that there's two mindsets. I have a growth mindset that is, however good I think I am, I'm still a work in progress. I can get better. Or however bad I think I am, regardless that what it is, I am have a growth mindset and I believe I can get better. Versus, I have a fixed mindset that whatever I have is whatever I have and nothing I do is going to make a difference. Just to summarize and extreme it a little bit from what Carol actually wrote. If I have a fixed mindset, then brain activity drops when a mistake is pointed out. And that's when we go into the defensive behavior or we just shut down. I'm not going to get any better. Eh, who cares? Can't make anybody happy. Eh. But in the growth mindset, that's what gets me the willingness to pay attention. The activity in the brain goes up, and I start looking at ways to improve. Exactly. So well said. All right. But how do I stay out of defensiveness? Is it just purely that growth mindset that will keep me from feeling? Like when you said in your starting point that your teaching assistant points out that you're interrupting women differently than men Mm -hmm. or you're calling on men more than women and you're shocked. It's easy in that moment, even with a growth mindset, to say that can't be. That's not me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so this is where... um, so I, I'm, I typically study topics like unconscious bias. And what we know from that research is that unconscious bias is part of how the human mind works. It, it's all it is is a shortcut that when we do work on, when we do anything, we are relying on a lot of mental shortcuts that allow us to operate in the world without having to pay attention to every little thing we see and hear and do. There's just lots of shortcuts our brain can can operate from. And if that's true, that our mind uses unconscious shortcuts, some of them are unconscious biases that are different than our conscious beliefs. 
then we're going to have some gaps or blind spots. And so then the question becomes, how do I um, uh, find those blind spots? It's not, do I have blind spots? And I heard this great uh, saying of, uh, if you... If you think you have no blind spots, that is your blind spot. <laughs> and so if, if we assume that to be true and, and the, the social psychology of the last 50 years suggests it is very clearly, um, then this growth versus fixed mindset becomes really interesting because it seems like in a fixed mindset, it almost assumes you have no blind spots, Right. But mm-hmm. because it just assumes you know what you know, but a growth mindset is set up per- perfectly for how our minds are actually wired. It's set up to be like, oh, there's probably stuff I don't know out there and blind spots I'm not aware of. So when I was um, taking the work I do, which is mostly in the area of unconscious bias and thinking about how to help people make use of the science we now have in that area, that's where Carol Dweck's mindset work just seems so useful because we need a way of thinking about this that unlocks learning rather than shuts down our identity. And so that defensiveness, that threat that I feel what we as psychologists call self-threat, that only comes if you view yourself as locked into that identity with no learning to be done. Um, I call that the good person identity, the one where you're you view the only way to be a good person is to be completely free of bias. And yet, as I just, um, as I was just uh, explaining, the research we have from the last 50 years suggests none of us are completely free of bias. So that puts that idea of being a good person under threat constantly unless we can unlock some learning with a growth mindset. Okay, so I know we're going to dig into this one in a few minutes, but this notion that if I believe myself to be a good person, if my intention is to be a good person, or my mindset is that I am a good person and I'm trying to do the right things, when that good, that image gets locked, gets fixed, as in I am and I've got it and I have no blind spots and I'm doing everything great, then that's when I'm going to go into the defensiveness and the self-threat. Right, Versus seeing myself as a good person who makes mistakes. Yeah, and I, um, uh, I sometimes call it being a goodish person. That it's a work in progress. That that all of us are um, getting getting better, um, but not always perfect. And so when we make mistakes, it's a chance to pay attention. It's a chance to continue improving. It's not either or good or bad person because almost everyone, if you give someone an either or choice, good or bad person, they pick good. You know, that's the identity they're going to claim for themselves. But that's not exactly, that's not at all how human behavior works. So why don't we all give up this good, bad uh, dichotomy and think of ourselves as being on this journey? Um, And that's what a goodish person identity is all about. On this journey. Okay, I want to come back to that one and talk more about what that means and what the research means. But before I do that one, I want to talk a little bit about, so what do we do? Do you have tactics or tips that allow us to um, adopt a growth mindset in our day-to-day work that allow us to see ourselves as this good-ish person and get out of the fixed mindset and have the right kind of conversations? Absolutely. So 
part of what we want to do is just start opening ourselves up to more ideas and more perspectives. Like I, on my own, when I was teaching that class, wasn't able to see the pattern that my TA was able to see, my teaching assistant, or perhaps even that the students in the class may have all been seeing. I was the one who couldn't see it. So part of what we want to do is just give ourselves the chance to learn and grow. We don't have to be able to see our own blind spots. We just need um, to be able, when other people see them, to, to welcome that information. And so it's everything from uh, taking a look at whatever you like to consume the most. So if you're a book reader or you're a podcast listener, as, as I hope your listeners are, um, or a movie watcher, wh- whatever your thing is, you know, pick, pick the medium and look at the last five to ten um, uh, units of that medium that you consumed. So if, you know, if you're a podcast listener, what are the five podcasts that you typically listen to? Whose voices are represented? Whose perspectives are excluded? Um, how similar are those voices to your own? How similar are they to each other within the five to ten? And use that as a little self-audit of what's the What's the, um, what are you breathing in on a regular basis? And take whatever information you generate and just look for a way to expand it a bit. You know, what could you add to that pool of books or podcasts or movies or music or social media that would open up your perspective a little more? Um, people who perhaps have a different racial background or gender than you do. Um, in my book, I interviewed uh, a a gentleman named Rick Clow at Google Ventures, and he shared with me that uh, he really considers it a priority at work to um, hire women. He works in tech and, and venture capital, sort of at the intersection, so uh, definite gender imbalance issues, and he considered himself someone who was actively trying to change that in terms of how he mentored women, hired women, promoted women, um, doing his best to do that fairly. And then he he went to this uh, training program that talked about unconscious bias, and they asked folks to take uh, a, a measure called the Implicit Association Test or the IAT, and he got back a result that suggested unconscious gender bias, and he really was surprised, and it felt off to him. So just to kind of do, run his own little self-audit, he took a look at his social media. Um, he's pretty active and visible on social media. His voice is um, in, his, in, in the industries, in the intersection of industries where he sits. His voice is an important one, and who he's connected to is important. And um, he, ran through, uh, he ran through LinkedIn and Twitter, and he started realizing that only 20% of his connections were women on these different media. And he was like, whoa. I didn't expect that. And he, he just kept checking all the different platforms in which he participates, and the result was eerily the same in every platform. And that was this aha moment for him that he said, you know, I didn't even realize I was breathing in um, sort of a very slanted perspective. And this was, when I interviewed him, it was before the um, Me Too movement became a national dialogue um, with a with a broad set of voices in it. Uh, and it, it, he said back then in that interview, he said, you know, it's interesting when you are 
only hearing from a minority of women in your daily social media, uh, you don't hear, he said, I didn't hear that often about sexual harassment. Every now and then and it felt like a one-off. And he said, as I balanced uh, the voices I was listening to, I started realizing these stories were coming up really regularly and I hadn't noticed it before. Um, so he started seeing something and this, I, this noticing piece of it, I think is so powerful. It's just a matter of noticing things that maybe weren't visible to us before. Uh, just all came out of him doing a bit of a self audit, just looking at kind of what he was consuming on a daily basis. That's an interesting, this notion of doing, I like your exercise of doing this audit of whatever it is you read, listen to, connect with, what was the last five to ten of those, and how limited is that in its own way? Well, similar is it? Um, yeah. Following on some research by Sandy Pentland, I have been advocating that people go back and take a look at who do you send chats to? Who do you oh. most often invite to meetings? Who do you sit beside at meetings? Who do you look at yeah. at meetings? And who do you send emails to? And a client yesterday said, furthermore, we're tracking, by the way, or we can track if people ask us to, um, whether the questions you're asking are transactional questions in email or exchange of ideas in email. Ooh, lovely. And you can get all of this without too much complexity in your own life to go back and look at, well, even at work, whose voice am I hearing and whose voice am I not hearing? Yeah, this is great. I I love it. Powerful, powerful things. All right. So just for a moment, imagine that I'm a manager and Mm -hmm. we've said as a manager, not imagine I am a manager, but as a manager. Yeah. (laughs) um, And I've taken a look, and I recognize that I need to balance who I'm talking to or who I'm hearing from in a variety of parts of my life. Are there other things I need to be thinking about doing on a day-to-day basis that will make a difference? Absolutely. So it's really, I love the example you just gave about, you know, the, the kinds of communications you're having with people. It's not just who you're communicating with, but the kinds of communication. Um, it reminds me of, I was speaking, again, interviewing for the book uh, with Tony Prophet, who's the chief equality officer at Salesforce.com. And as, as many of your listeners may know, Salesforce has gotten quite a bit of attention for uh, being at the forefront of trying to address some issues, for example, around um, the gender pay gap. And I said, well, I'm really curious. You guys have gotten a lot of visibility and done a lot. You've actually taken some actions. Uh, t- tell me, what do you see as the most important uh, advice that you have to give other organizations on this? And I was waiting for some really big, you know, uh, like groundbreaking thing. And he said, uh, I-, I think they should run better meetings. And I was like, run better meetings? Really? Like, that's that's it? And, uh, you know, that's kind of like when I teach my MBA students, that's like the nuts and bolts of being a manager, how to run a meeting. We kind of cover that. Um, and he said, no, 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 really. Think about it. He said, whatever's happening in your organization is happening within your meetings. Whoever's being included or excluded, whoever's being getting credit versus not getting credit, whoever's um, being heard versus overlooked, like all of the dynamics that matter on a macro scale are happening on a micro scale in your meetings. It's the most brilliant insight that everything we know about what makes a better meeting 
the kinds of things that I teach my students in a sort of nuts and bolts way about balancing airtime, ensuring healthy debate and conflict, thinking through the design of the meeting and the purpose and the place and, you know, the, the five P's of good meeting, purpose, place, perspective, et cetera, that turns out to be exactly the same set of um, activities and behaviors that not only make better meetings, but also make organizations that are more inclusive and create all the benefit, the possibility of generating the real business benefits of diversity because of that greater inclusion. And so this, I thought this was just a wonderful step that everyone can begin wherever they are. It could be meetings with a capital M or it could be the kind of conversations that are more informal. They could be electronic or they could be in person within an organization, but paying really close attention to who's talking, who's not, who's being interrupted, who's not, and noticing the dynamics that could be contributing to bigger issues in the organization. All right, I have three follow-ons on that one, Dolly. I can't resist. One is I've been telling (laughs) managers for ages that if you do nothing else just to make sure that you insist that everybody in the meeting has spoken. So making time for everybody in the meeting to speak. Really simple, straightforward. There's a whole lot more we could do to run better meetings. Agreed with that one. But that simplicity would make a difference. And the other one I've been big on is who do you spend your informal time with at work, meaning the unscheduled, unstructured time, because that's where the real trust and exchange is built. And if that's not broadly inclusive, we're right back to the same stuff that you talked about at the beginning, that you're getting a very limited slice of people. Nice. I love that. The last one I want to say is, again, a shout out to Sandy Pentelon. We did a radio show a couple of weeks ago where he has measured interruptions in meetings. Mm. And he says men interrupt differently than women. Mm. And that it leaves men looking more in control of meetings, largely by the way they interrupt women. Interesting. So this whole notion of who do you interrupt, when do you interrupt them, how do you interrupt them, and what's the signal that sends? Um, Sandy's work is called Honest Signals, just for the record. Honest Signal? Thank you. Okay. All right. So the thing I love, Dolly, is the statement from Salesforce. It's fabulous. Running better meetings. That whatever's happening in your organization is ultimately happening in the meeting. So making sure the meetings are good ones. What a great insight. I love it. Yeah, really powerful, and and it, there's lots of data to be gathered and noticed, back to noticing in the meetings, and then it can be, all of that can be expanded outside of the meetings. Okay, I love that one. All right, we're going to take a break at this point. When I come back, I want to talk about what this goodish person really means and how, more okay. about how to go about doing it, but I also want to talk about how do we tackle comments when we hear somebody else say something and we're not sure what to say. So we'll do both of those. With me today is Dolly Chuk. Dolly is at the New York University Stern School of Business. The book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight by Us, and we'll be right back. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel, and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Dolly Chug, the book we've been talking about, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight by Us. I should also say again that Dolly's 2018 TED Talk has had more than a million and a half views, and even in its first month online, I don't even know what the number is today, and it was one of the top 25 of 2018. Having watched it, I can highly recommend it as a great TED Talk to listen to. All right, now we were just talking about this notion of uh, the, that we have a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Fixed means I have whatever capabilities, skills, insights I have, and I'm not going to change. And growth mindset means I, whatever I am, good or bad, I can get better at it. And that when you adopt a growth mindset, you're much more open to noticing the things as they were received by other people without getting defensive or feeling threatened in any way. And want to apply this to this notion of whether I feel good or bad, identify as a good person or a bad person. As Dolly says, most of us see ourselves as a good person. And if you draw it as a dichotomy and you have a fixed mindset around good, that means when you say something or do something that was received in a way other than you thought it intended to be received, then you're going to feel threatened and defensive and you lose the opportunity to learn in that moment about how else to say it and how else to do it. And we know we all have biases 
because it's how our brains are wired to allow us to tolerate, to manage the flow of information into our heads every single day, every minute of every day. So the notion is to be open to hearing how somebody else received what it was I said or did and not getting fixed on my intentions. Second big idea out of this one is the notion of expanding who you talk to, what you read, what you listen to, so you're hearing other voices. Do an audit to see where the bias is in that one, and equally do an audit in the meetings that you're a part of, especially organizing, because as Salesforce says, whatever is happening in your organization is happening in the meetings, even in the ones you run. So how's that for a summary of a very long discussion, Dolly? That's a rock star summary. (laughs) All right, thanks. All right, I want to turn to this question. So I hear this all the time that someone said something that didn't necessarily offend me, but I'm worried it might have offended somebody else, or I may even know it offended somebody else. And I don't know what to say or do in that moment. How do we tackle those kind of situations? What's your advice? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there's a couple of tools in my book that, that, that these, this is a part of the book that I think's gotten actually the most feedback from readers as being uh, stuff they're putting to use right away, very actionable. Um, the first tool is make your, learn, your own learning visible. So if you're going to talk to someone else about um, you, you're trying to point out one of their blind spots, um, consider sharing that you too have had moments where you've had to notice your own. So it's really tough to go at someone with a stance of, I've already got this all figured out, but let me show you all the ways in which you haven't, versus, wow, there's a lot we sometimes don't realize in terms of how our intention and impact don't line up. It's happened to me, like, here's an example, um, I want to. I wonder if you'd be open to me sharing something I noticed happened in our meeting when you were speaking, and I think that I know that completely changes the conversation. When we make our own learning visible to other people, we basically are activating our growth mindset and potentially activating their growth mindset. That's what we're trying to do in that moment: is take where they most most of us on issues like this, these socially charged tough issues, diversity, inclusion, bias, things like that. Most of us are in a fixed mindset. We think we're supposed to be free of bias and mistakes. We think we're supposed to be a good person, period, either or. Um, If you're going to have a conversation with someone about a blind spot or a mistake, the first thing to do is try to move them away from good person to goodish person, away from fixed mindset to growth mindset. And the tool is to make your learning visible. In, in, in helping them begin that movement. The second tool that um, is, is useful to have in these moments is something I stole from my corporate life. Uh, before I became an academic, I worked with Lucia Anunzio, who's a, a culture change uh, consultant, and she uses something called the 20-60-20 rule. I think it adapts really well to the kinds of situations we're talking about here. Here's, here's my um, sort of adaptation of the 20-60-20 rule. In, anytime there's going to be some sort of change, 20% of folks are going to be like, yay, thank goodness for this change. Like, I'm going to champion this change. And those are the folks that we just don't, if you don't get in their way, they're going to run with it. 
Then there's 20% of folks who are never, ever going to be happy with this change. They are, uh, Susan would call, uh, Lucia would call them comfortably miserable. They're, now I don't mean comfortably miserable like overall as a human being, but on this particular issue, they have just, they've, they've, uh, they're entrenched in the way it is and they're not going to buy into whatever this new change is. And then 60% of folks are kind of in the middle and not even paying attention really to what the new change is. They're, you know, they're, they're, this isn't their, the hill they're going to die on. They're not paying um, close attention to what either 20 is saying. And they are um, not, they're, they're basically going to be swayed by whichever way the winds blow, you know, what we call social norms. They're, they're just going to sort of see what happens. And when we want to talk to someone about something they said or didn't say or some, some incident, it's really useful to have 206020 right top of mind. It, we, we're not perfect reads of other people, of course, but can we make a quick judgment of which group they're in, 20, 60, or 20? If they're in that first 20, go for it. Have the conversation sooner rather than later. Frame it as a growth mindset conversation, and you'll go far in that conversation. If they're in the other 20, that conversation may get somewhere, but it may not. And so what you want to do there is less about trying to persuade them and more about trying to notice the impact that person is having on others. So, for example, do you need to, um, if they've said something in a meeting, do you need to just pipe up with a, oh, my gosh, you know, Bob, you look, you look so young to have such an old-fashioned idea, um, something like that, which isn't actually trying to convince Bob that you didn't agree with that. You are just trying to signal to the rest of the room that what was just said is not going to be the dominant narrative for this conversation, that there's an alternate way of thinking about this. And that's really different than going head-to-head and getting sucked into a really deep argument if you really don't think that you're going to be able to push that, the person in that other 20. This leaves us with the middle 60, and this is the group we often forget. Most people are in the middle 60, and here, this is the group that we forget is our hidden audience. When you're going head-to-head with Bob in the meeting, what we're forgetting is that the middle 60 is sort of saying nothing and kind of listening, and we have an opportunity to actually shift our attention there. They're the ones who actually could be moved in either direction, and um, they're most influenced, according to research, by uh, humanizing stories more than data. When someone isn't deeply entrenched on an issue or with an opinion, stories are more persuasive than statistics. And so I would say when you're trying to decide what to do when someone said something, what to say, whether to say something, 20-60-20. First 20, go for it. Um, other 20, pause and consider the hidden audience. Middle 60, this is an opportunity to proceed with stories. Can you give me an example about a kind of story? So here we are in the meeting. Bob said something. Yep. We think, oh, my gosh, what kind of a story would that work for the middle yeah, 60%? Exactly. That's right. So, so just, and I'll contrast the two approaches. So stories versus stats. So it'll be like the stats approach would be, this explains why um, 17% of our women leave before they hit the VP level versus only 6% of our men. That would be a stats yeah. approach. A story approach would be, 
You know, when we had Anjali here, everyone thought she was going to be a fabulous senior leader or in the organization, and it was mysterious to us why she left when she got to the AVP level. I learned when I had drinks with her later that blah, 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 blah. Um, that's a moment to personalize the, the, the story rather than go to the more macro abstract statistics. Okay. So 20 year champions on board, ready to go, gun-ho, leave them alone or small reinforcement, they'll go after it. 20% mm-hmm. roughly, obviously, entrenched, right. very difficult to move, very fixed in their own place to use the fixed mindset again, for whatever reasons, hard to move. 60% though is, would make the difference. And I'm going to use the word malleable. They're bendable. They could be moved. And for that 60%, it's the stories, the human element, the human impact of a story that's going to really help them move on one side or the other of an issue. That's right. Exactly. Fabulous. I love those tactics. I think we always get talked in uh, or get focused on persuading the unbelievers and what to do with the unbelievers. And I think I agree with you. We're missing the trick. There's 80% out there that are really ready to do something if you move them in the right direction. That's right. And and the other thing I'll just add to that is we, we, we underestimate uh, the power of social norms. You don't have to change someone's attitudes to change their behavior. All you have to do is change what everyone else is doing. And, the, you know, no one faces the opposite direction in the elevator. If I, I, I'm here in New York City right now. If I were to walk down the sidewalk saying hello and good morning to everybody, that would appear a little unusual. So most people don't do that. We follow the social norms. And so you don't have to convince people that their ideas um, need to change. You just have to give them a sense that that the social norms are in a particular direction. Right. We see that in a whole host of ways, currently in politics and well as in our corporate life. And as well as, you know, you join a company and people start telling you, well, that's not how we do things around here Indeed. fairly quickly. So those social norms get propagated faster than you can imagine. True. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, so let's go back to this where you started, this notion of being a goodish person. Yeah. And we said a little bit about that one, but I want to return because you got some wonderful research on goodish. And again, you frame this in terms of if we think of either good or bad, we're all going to identify with good. And therefore, and I'm going to have a tendency to say, how could I have made that kind of mistake because I'm a good person? gets me more fixed mindset versus this growth mindset that we've been thinking about. So expand on what you found about goodish people and what it takes to be goodish. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I, um, so I'm not a journalist by training. I'm a social psychologist. I'm trained in scientific methods. Um, but for the book, I got to interview 40 plus people and use their stories as a way to, illustrate the science and, and make it come alive, humanize it. Um, and I, I learned the hard way that when I was looking for examples of how um, when we are able to put on that goodish mindset, in other words, see ourselves as works in progress, you know, all the learning that unlocks, those are the stories I was looking for in my interviews. And I learned the hard way that um, in order to 
invite people to share that with me and be even, even share it with themselves, that I had to start the interview by sharing my own stories with them. The first few interviews I did, I, I really didn't get any good stories that I could have shared with you right now because I just went into the interview questions not realizing that what I was asking people to do was be goodish, and yet the default is good, not goodish. And so no one, everyone was sort of reporting out that they had no mistakes and no blind spots <laughs> and no learning. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to make for a very good book. Um, Eventually, I realized that we could unlock those stories, and there are so many. Um, I'll share. I'll share a couple of my favorites. One is um, Perrin Childs, who's a producer in Hollywood. Um, he's a white man, and uh, in his own words, you know, th- there's a lot of blind spots that of things that he is realizing he has um, every day. He was involved with Project Greenlight, which was. Um, a reality series on TV, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are the two big names involved with it where they would uh, have a competition for filmmakers and screenwriters. And the idea was, uh, I think their tagline was, talent can come from anywhere and go anywhere. Um, and they were trying to find all this hidden talent. And what they realized was after a couple of seasons, they kept having the same prototypical white male winner to the competition, um, which was, uh, there was a lot of talent there, but it wasn't the breadth of applications they were expecting to get. And Perrin Childs was one of the producers behind this show. Um, and it, it kind of came to a boiling point when they had, again, it's a reality show, so a lot of stuff, you know, real stuff gets broadcast. Um, and there was a rather tense exchange between um, a black female judge on the show and Matt Damon, who's a white male and was also a judge on the show. And it, it, the whole thing came to a boiling point where it, it looked like um, the perspective of someone outside of that white male prototype was not being heard and, and that that's what was contributing to this pattern. This became um, widely discussed on social media, and the show and the producers of the show took a lot of heat for it. In that moment, what was really critical is how Parent Childs thought about his response. And when I interviewed him months after this incident, um, he described it as stumbling upwards, that, that he's like, you know, we did plenty of things that were missteps, but what we kept trying to do is with every misstep, think about, and I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting him exactly, just to be clear that his exact quotes are in the book, um, but what we tried to do was just think about what we could learn from every situation, and I have a former student, Allie Esslinger, who was really helpful in the writing of the book. She uh, she started what she calls Netflix for lesbians. It's, it's a wonderful company called Section 2, and she's one of the people that Perrin reached out to and started a conversation with of what, can, what are we missing? Why aren't we getting applications um, outside of this straight white male filmmaker? And uh, began a conversation that Ali described as being a true learning conversation where he was um, not expecting to be educated, but open to hearing perspectives about ways in which they perhaps were stumbling more than they realized. And so 
that I thought just illustrated all the things we're all trying to do. It's not that we're going to get it perfect. It's sometimes you're even going to set out with really big, good intentions, in this case, very visible and public intentions, and still not get it right. And sometimes you're going to take a lot of heat, um, and that's going to feel horrible. And yet still, and those are the mo- those are the moments where we can do the most learning if we can stay in that mindset of there's something to be learned here. So two comments. One is it reminds me of a senior white male that I worked with a number of years ago who was just focused so intensely on promoting and advancing women within the organization. At the same time, there was a critical decision to get made that affected a lot of people, including a couple of females. And Uh he got overly influenced by a white male. That's my understanding of events. I'm sure if he were sitting here, he might disagree with that statement. But my interpretation is he got overly influenced. And it's that sense of my intention was really, really in the good right. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to learn. But I didn't hear that somebody else might interpret this in a different way. Mm. I heard from the person that's most like me. Yeah. And that's understandable. I mean, I have deep empathy for that. And as I know you do, that um, this isn't a matter of shaming people. It's just a matter of noticing that, that that could happen. And also setting ourselves up so that when it is happening, people are willing to tell us. Right. Yeah. That there's, yeah. There's a whole lot of noticing other people do about us that that we don't have access to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So, all right. So let's say I have an opportunity where I think there's a chance to learn. I might even be aware that I made a misstep or a mistake, and I might not be aware yet. How mm-hmm. do I go about asking that question in a way that gets people to tell me the truth? Mm. Well. I, I think asking any question, we don't even have to get the words right. Um, as long as we are clear that we're not demanding to be educated, because this is work for other, for other people to help us see what's not visible to us is work. You know, when, anytime you try to convince someone of something, that's hard. And particularly if it's something like this, which is deeply personal. So, um, Phrases like, I'm open to hearing what you think, or uh, um, uh, what am I missing, or I suspect I have blind spots, what are you seeing that I'm not, or tell me more. These are phrases that if we can say them with a sincere interest in what the person wants to share, um, can unlock a conversation. We also don't have to limit ourselves to the people in our immediate environment. We live in the world of the Internet, and there's a whole lot you can educate yourself on on the Internet where you don't have to go burden anybody with educating you. In fact, and you can get multiple perspectives. So um, if you said something about... Uh, what is professional dress at work and people seem to give you weird looks and you don't understand what you said wrong, uh, go Google professional dress and you'll see a whole bunch of perspectives from people with different hair types, different body types, different genders that may give you a different sense of what, why professional dress means different things to different people. That's a great, I like that suggestion. I'm going to go try that myself because every now and then okay. I get in trouble. I do making some comment along those lines. Again, yeah, with really too. good intentions, but I don't right. haven't found a way to say this that makes everybody happy. 
Okay, what about apologies? Suppose I realize I made a mistake. Uh, it, am I? Should I always apologize? What do I do in that moment when I have a realization? Yeah, I, I think apologies are powerful, um, especially if the apology is a real apology, not a I'm sorry if you were offended. That is simply shifting responsibility to others as opposed to accepting responsibility. Um, I'm still learning. I'm really sorry for what I said. I'm still learning. I've got more work to do. Uh, it goes a long way. And, I, you know, I, I teach people in their 20s and 30s. I'm double their age. Uh, I'm stepping in it all the time, and that's a crowd that, you know, is sometimes forgiving and sometimes uh, a little less so. Um, and I find that there's just tremendous value in owning that you're trying to get better. And so, uh, the, the, you know, the tagline is, um, let go of being a good person so that you can be a better person. So uh-huh. let go of the idea that, like, I had to get this exactly right, therefore if I'm apologizing, I'm saying I didn't get it exactly right and I'm not a good person. The, when you think of apologies that way, they're devastating. It's, this is, I'm letting go of being a good person, I'm apologizing for the mistakes I'm making along the way, and I'm on this constant journey to being a better person. Fabulous. All right. So if you were, and you've got two minutes to do this one, if you were giving somebody advice about how to begin this journey to be a goodish person, mm-hmm. so you said let go of being a good person, be a goodish person on a journey to being a better person. Any steps, any first steps you'd encourage people to take? Well, um, absolutely. I'd say one first step is to uh, start thinking about what your blind spots are. Just, you know, do the audit. The second step would be um, think about five people you know whose names you don't know how to pronounce. Uh, chances are, I'm willing to bet, if you don't know how to pronounce their name, you're either avoiding them, mispronouncing their name, um, shorthanding their name in a way that may or may not be comfortable for them. Uh, learn how to say their names, and you don't even have to keep asking them how to say it. Just Google how to pronounce, put their name, and audio files immediately come up for pretty much every name I've ever typed in. Um, that's a powerful act of inclusion. It's the first important thing that ever happened when that person was born was a name was given to them. Learn how to say their names. If you don't know how to say it, it's probably because their background is different than yours. And that's exactly the opposite of what you're trying to do when you're trying to be the person you mean to be. You're trying to not distance yourself from people different than yours. So do the audit. Learn how to say five names that you don't know how to say of people you interact with or could be or should be interacting with. And finally, start looking for ways in which you can know more about your unconscious bias. You can take the IAT by going to implicit.harvard.edu. That's a research website. It's anonymous. You don't have to enter your email address or anything like that. And within 10 minutes, you can get one little peek into what are some possible unconscious biases you might have. I love that one. So implicit.harvard.edu, completely anonymous test to see your own bias. And if you've heard this stuff around the implicit bar, unconscious bias and haven't taken that test, highly recommend so you understand what's driving some of the research conclusions that we're getting out of that one, plus some good insights about yourself. Dolly, there's so much in this one and more topics that we didn't get to talk about, like privilege and how to understand that mm. and how to see it and what to do about it. I know you have some things in the book, so I'm just going to reference that as a place for people to go. This is um, 
you know, of all the conversations that I've had about dealing with bias with people, this one is the one that stands out for me as most impactful. And this notion mm. that you have about getting, letting rid, getting, oop, letting go of being a good versus a bad person mm. and accept that I'm a work in progress, meaning sometimes I'm going to get it right, sometimes I'm going to get it wrong, to show the vulnerability of being able to say to people, I'm learning about this or I'm growing on this one or I'm a work in progress and ask for the feedback or ask for the perceptions or ask for the advice. And I think also just starting to get some sort of audits of just who am I talking to and who am I really listening to and what voices am I not hearing? Those are powerful messages for all of us. So my guest today, Jolly Chug, the book is The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Dolly, thank you for being a guest today. It was a fabulous show. Oh, thank you, Wanda. I really enjoyed this conversation. Excellent. Join us next week for another episode on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.